What is the point of this paperwork? What is the point of these meetings? What is the point of managers coming and going? You must gain balance within yourself before you can bring balance to the world. Sometimes I faltered. I had bad days. We need people to be human at work. Because they spend too much time doing cultural transformation. The minute you say the word, you've already created resistance in the organization. The only way humans can grow is through temporal comparison and not through social comparison. Humans can only grow is when they compare themselves to themselves. What, what is the point? Welcome to the Meaningful Work podcast. My name is Amit Paul and I'll be hosting today's conversation with... I was trying to think of how we met, but but uh, I didn't... I can't remember. Uh, but uh, Imran Rehman, welcome to the Meaningful Work podcast. Hi, nice to see you, Amit. Great, and thanks for inviting me. It's really good to have you. And uh, I, I've, uh, in my mind, uh, you are a one of those sort of super coach uh, personalities. I feel that you have that sort of innately ingrained in you in some way or another. <laughs> and then uh, you also have a company called Bikokoro that I think both of those will, uh, things will come up um, in today's conversation when we talk about meaningful work. Um, but to, to start us off, what is meaningful work to you? That's a good question. And um, for me, very often, um, when I hear the word meaningful, it has something very much to do with being simple. And because for me, when you're trying to work out simple things, it becomes very, very hard. And for me, um, it always ties in that when I want to create something simple, you have to take away the obvious and leave the meaningful there. So that's what you've got to do with work then, isn't it? You've got to take away the obvious, which mm -hmm. might be uh, make a profit, uh, might be uh, we create great products, we have happy customers. And then you come right down to, well, what is the meaningful part of work for people? And I think there, um, meaningful then might take many um, sort of constructs because I think each and every one of us in construe and create a world we live in. And um, to a degree, it needs to serve that. And that's when work becomes meaningful for you. Because if you feel that you're having an experience where you're growing and learning, the likelihood is that it's meaningful. So for me, what it comes down to is um, an experience. So meaningful for me means a human experience. Ah, that's a really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, because <laughs> I've, I've had some tension around, um, you know, I, I think as humans, we are meaning making um, organisms. And, and uh, for me, it's been a journey into finding meaning in a lot of different uh, buckets. So that because work has been in sort of an easy bucket to find meaning in, because that's how I typically interact with the world and so forth. And um I've been a little bit conflicted about that. Like, is that the only imprint that I want to make? Like, is that the best imprint that I can make? Like, what, what are the, uh, if, if we are in this world and it's changing and, and I want to contribute to that change in a positive fashion, um, is my work actually the best way? Like, you know, should I just go and be a dad? Or like, should I step out of the system? Or should I be in the system? And like, how do I relate to all of those things? I'm, I'm with you. Um, and it's the conditioning we're in, I think is the problem. 
So if I was to put a finger on something we cannot ignore because a problem for me is something um, we have to look at and say, we can't ignore this. And this is this utter and complete, and I would say to a point, colonial idea that there is only one you. And there isn't one you because there are multiple roles you play. And maybe as part of those roles, there are also complete identities you play as well within each of those roles. Maybe some roles has the same identity again and again. But as a father, you have a different identity. As somebody who is a pair in an organization working with me on something, you have a different role, and therefore a different identity. Um, with your partner, with whom you wish to spend the rest of your life, you have a different identity. And with her or with him or they, um, you might not even open up everything about your identity. So um, it, that's where the tension comes in, is because this, this is idea that there is one meaningful way of working out what's right for my identity, my personality. But... No, you will realize that most humans have more than one. And that does mean then that each and every um, identity or role you play means a different contribution that it needs to make to the world. And then hopefully it, by making that contribution, it will also receive you know, some sort of feedback where this individual or this role, the other identity feels content. Now, it sounds a bit complex, isn't it? But ultimately, what I'm saying is um, I'm not speaking to one Amit today, and I'm happy I'm not. Right. The family of Amit. <laughs> yes, that's what it is. Because right. what it will do ultimately, it allows you to say that I am able to um, unfold um, and grow or shed multiple skins in different ways. Um, it does not mean that you lose any, you lose any form of integrity, but there is um, an European narrative of you having one backbone, one narrative, one personality, and how dare you move from one to the other or play around. And, and one of the things that people forget is like, you know, like when that's why actors, um, these wonderful women and men that play different roles and different identities, and sometimes you don't recognize them, they play them so well, that they get looked at as, wow, you are magical. And uh -huh. today, one part of the reason why they get paid such large amounts is because of the fascination of how do they turn into a different personality and create a new meaning for themselves in a new character. So it, 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 I can understand the tension because the tension is fueled by a conditioning we have to shake off. We have to let go of it because the conditioning is um, ingrained in many forms of, of colonialism, imperialism. Um, if you speak to the comparative literature experts, you know, they will give you, give you words like post-colonial theory and they will give you all sorts of words. But that's where we're stuck in the narrative. And not until we let go of that narrative, we will build organizations that are able to thrive of a community structure in which every individual might find multiple needs. Um, and when that happens, um, you'll find humans will excel beyond what we could never imagine. Hmm. And current structures um, stop us from growing in that way.
Mm. So, so if you come and talk to an organization that is unaware of this uh, yeah. p- potential, or like this, um, yeah, this potential, actually, um, how, in what way would you invite them? On on onto this journey, like how how would you let them explore the water that they're swimming in? Kind of. Yeah, I know because it's hard, isn't it? But for me, um, you know, there's this, you know, there's. I mean, I always look at, you know, there's three things I was you always, people look at when you walk into a business. That's always you're looking at the people, you're looking at the processes, and you're looking at some sort of performance. Yeah, those three P's. Um, and so you can start the conversation there and see if there is any form of like connection and agreement um, where you say, look, hey, here we, hey, this is a great, we, we seem to be connecting here. If that happens, then the talk might go into a different depth or to a different place and say, well, how, how do, can I work with you? Um, and what happens then is then I go, well, look, um, I work on three things mainly. I work on structure. So one of the biggest things is I know that structure carries power. Um, if you want to move structure, you need data. And that's one of the biggest things we realized with Coca-Cola because we realized when a crisis happens or when a pandemic happens or whenever the markets change or recession comes, there's one thing that happens. The power of organizations um, goes to the periphery and at the periphery you find teams. And the structures need to serve these teams because these teams do great, create the best value in organizations. So you need data for these people to be the best they can. So, and that's the work we do at Kokoro. So that's one thing I talk about structure. The other thing I talk about is, well, um, we have a space where we talk about to-dos, ticking the boxes, the things we need to get done. And that, that space is, takes up so much room in the organization that nobody has any other time to do anything else. Um, um, when do I do training? When do I do strategic work? When do I step out and learn something completely new? Um, and so it's about creating the spaces because we humans create spaces. We create them through cities. We create them through living rooms, bedrooms, you know, kitchens, restaurants, circuses, amusement parks, um, holiday destinations. We, we, we create all these spaces and we're, we're fantastic at doing them. Um, and what we need to do is create spaces where people can start doing things. It could be a space to do a retro. It could be a space to think about, well, hang on. There's certain things that don't work in our organization. Well, where do we talk about the things that really get on our nerves? And do we create a role who deals with it? Um, so that's one thing. And I think the structure and the space is always attached to one other big thing, which I always use when I work with people, and that is the stories they bring. And if you can get people to start sharing those stories, you can learn. And the minute you start getting people to learn, then you'll know what structures to change, what spaces to create. Um, and then you'll see the stories will start changing. And if stories start changing, um, lo and behold, we haven't meant to mention the word culture yet because you don't need to, culture starts evolving. Mm. And that's what it is for me. Um, and once again, coming back to this sort of thing about, you know, well, what about culture? Well, work on structure, work on spaces, work on stories. And things will magically happen with your culture. And that's where I think most people get it wrong. And I will say wrong because they spend too much time doing cultural transformation. And um, the minute you say the word, you've already 
created resistance in the organization. What do create people? Oh, no, not another one. Oh, God, this HR. Oh, this leader thinks they can do it now. <laughs> but hang on. Um, we're an organization that's created through 20 companies. We were created by a very, very, what do you call it? Um, when you grow through acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it was pushed by acquisition. They bought 20 companies to completely stop the competition in, in Europe. And now they're coming in and want to do a culture thing and try to make one culture out of all of us. What are you on about? Um, instead of doing that, they should serve the organization and um, stop thinking that they're going to get one rounded individual um, and scale that one rounded individual to maybe 10,000 people and think they're going to get one culture because they won't. So there's, I think that's where my contention begins. My contention begins with this um, lack of engagement with, um, with the conditioning we have and not understanding we are all conditioned and not until we, if you want to use a DEI word, um, a diversity, equity, inclusion word, how do we unlearn all this mm. so we can learn that Amit or the Amits is who we serve? And say something more about it, because I, I, I think I have a feeling for how that relates to uh, stories, because it sounded like you know, that's that's the entry point or the portal into starting to uncover or uh, yeah. yeah uncover the other stuff so uh, so let's start with those stories so like very often the stories that we found that help you work out how to create the structures for your teams to be self-organizing so one thing that we know today is that lots of organizations big or small need to get they have they have to get a lot out of less so they have less resources but they need to get more out of them and the only way you can do that is if you have something which is self-organizing or self-directed and one of the best units of performance to do that is a team and what we kept on finding with the work we've been doing and the way we use data is that there are three aspects or three dimensions if you want to call it and the three that we found was number one belonging creating that sense of belonging um, what is belonging for us well number one um, belonging you can recognize and see when um, you are important in the system. So it will be Amit and all the other Amits feel they are seen. And the question would be, do we need all the Amits? Um, That is questions of, hey, what do we need as an organization? Do our customers need it? It might be nice to have all of them. Um, So do you feel important? And that means things like valued, appreciated. Those words that come up a lot. Nobody nobody understands what that means. Um, We can talk about that in a minute. The second thing is that, and I think this is a really big one, um, you can become who you need to become. So there might be an amit that nobody sees, knocking, might be knocking in on your door and saying, look, let me out. I want to come out and do more strategy. I think I can run a team. Do you know what? I want to do more. Um, how does the organization recognize it? And how does it then say, well, hang on, we've got somebody here who might be a bit introverted, who's a bit quieter, um, but how do we see this talent? Um, and how do we make sure that our biases doesn't get distracted, doesn't distract us, and we see somebody who's maybe confident but doesn't maybe have this talent um, to run teams, but we put this person into that position because of their performance, where, in fact, Amit might be the right person. Mm. And the final thing is, do you have access 
to the network within the organization that helps you grow because humans grow through connecting um, through other people, through relationships. And those relationships brings opportunity. Now, we know many of these through alumni, fraternities, um, the Gentleman's Club in the UK, if you want to take it to an extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, clubs is another way of looking at it. Status-based groups that um, help um, um, things in an organization grow quicker and faster. So it also gives you access. That's just belonging. That's the first thing. That's quite yeah. complex. If that isn't sorted, your brain's hijacked and you can only do the work you're supposed to do. You're stuck within your role. The second thing that matters is psychological safety. Now, a lot of people get this a bit wrong, I find. They always talk about psychological safety. It's got to be safe. And then they start speaking up. (laughs) And they start speaking up and saying everything that's in their mind. And people start getting hurt. And Mm -hmm. one thing that you'll remember, if you don't have belonging, when you have lots of psychological safety, you create a bro culture. And we've seen this phenomenon within the startup world um, where you've seen startup brothers or startup bros creating a really psychological safe environment with no belonging. It's all about growth and sales. And it becomes a toxic environment where people are bullied and pushed. And also criminal activity goes on. And you've seen this happen when they also get then put onto a pedestal, like the latest um, cryptocurrency sort of thing. Was it yeah, called the yeah. F- FTX, FTX, isn't it? Yeah, yeah FTX um, sort of thing. A wire card. These sort of these are the sort of cultures you have, and they're created because there's no sense of belonging. There's only a lot of psychological safety for the few. Once again, a status-based group that creates that psychological safety and everybody runs around frightened of it or hiding it because at the end of the day, they're trying to get their job done and get their monthly wage so they can pay their rent and live their lives. Now, so what does that mean? What is psychological safety? Well, for me, psychological safety is, well, for me, it's always been this one thing. What trust is to two people, psychological safety is to the group. So you can be yourself in a large group without having um, to fear consequence if you say something. And it might be, look, I think we've got to get this done better. We're not good enough. And I think we're not treating our customer well enough. And you don't get your head chopped off. You know, you don't get ostracized or pushed out of a group because you have called out the elephant in the room. So that's psychological safety. Now, if you've got psychological safety and belonging in place, um, those but stories... Just, just one question about... Uh, before, sorry. The when it comes to the psychological safety uh, and the because what I'm hearing you speak to is that when there is a certain way of building psychological safety that has a specific conditioning or like it's it's a it's not a, an unlimited uh, psychological safety it's not for everyone it is uh, based on these conditions as long as we're moving in this particular direction and so it's not an invitation for people to show up as they are it's an invitation for people to show up as they are supposed to be and then it, within that supposed to be uh, you just march in in lockstep sort of uh, that's what you're no you don't speaking. you've got to then have conversations um in each and every part of the organization it might be a bit different um right. no i was just thinking what, when it goes wrong between the yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. but all people start what they do is they um you roll yourself down into your you minimize your world so you're, you don't oh. stick your head out that's what you do um because you know there is a, a dominant group which has got a lot of psychological safety and they will call you out but if they call you out, you're done. That's it. It's the end of you. You are not seen anymore. 
Um, and that also then impacts your sense of belonging, doesn't it? Right. Because right. you then suddenly feel, whoa, I don't belong here. But do you know what? It's just a job. Yeah. And that's when another meaning is created to deal with survival. And, and survival is all about then classifying your job as just a job. Now, when people talk about engagement, um, one of the biggest issues is that a lot of people out there have just classified their job as, well, this is just a job. Yeah. Or when you meet somebody in Starbucks who's making you a coffee and you go and they start talking about art or something else. And then you go, so what are you doing here? And they go, oh, this isn't my role job. My role job starts when I get home. Right. And you start realizing that meaning attached to the word job then um, changes continuously because my role and my identity at Starbucks only fuels my real identity at home where my real job begins. And that has meaning for me. Then you start understanding what's happening, don't you? Um, and that's why why it's such a it's nice to know how many people are engaged and disengaged. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think the person who's done the best work in this space is Marcus Putnam, and I think we should follow him more in the way we do engagement. Um, but there's one thing about it is um, the disengagement we've got is based exactly on the environments leadership has created. And leadership needs to understand its biggest responsibility is to create a sense of belonging and that's psychological safety. And they are the ones that take the first step. And it's not on the onus of anybody else in the organization. If you signed a contract and you've taken on the position of leader and you want groups or teams or your unit or the organization to perform, then it's your job to make sure that you start focusing on the sense of belonging and the stories that make it happen. And once you've got that in place, you don't ever get that in place. It's continuous work, isn't it? It's setting up a structure, um, spaces and processes that ensure that that sometimes becomes a strategic aspect of the organization, that we continuously work at it. And there's a very fine line as well with belonging because you can create a community. And with a very fine line, you can suddenly become a, um, almost like a sect-like organization. So, you know, what moves a community into being like almost, oh, be careful. It's almost like a sect. So how do you create that balance? And I think that is the job of a leader. And that is the talent a leader has to learn and grow into. Um, and that's what is, should be expected of any leader in any organization, in any situation, whether it's NGOs or government or anything like that. Um, and that's what we've learned at Cocorro by looking at hundreds and hundreds of teams and realizing what really matters. And belonging and psychological safety are the beginnings of a foundation on which you can then create flow experiences. And that's the third thing I want to say is humans ultimately are not, they want to be, they want to have problems. They want to have challenges. They want to have crisis because getting through them is what makes them feel they're part of something, something bigger. And a flow experience is, is phenomenal when it happens, whether it's at an individual level, whether it's at a team level or whether it's at any level of the organization, because there's multiple areas within the organization where it might be subtly different, but at the same time, it is a flow experience. And I think that's what it's all about, bringing those all together um, and you will get flow. Um, but it, how can I say it? You know, Kokoro has a number of sort of, you know, when you, you know, you know, it has a number of meanings. Why do we call it Kokoro? Well, one part of it is it's the Japanese word for the heart, but it's not the physical heart, but when mind, body, and spirit come together and is integrated into one, they have the word kokoro. 
Then there's another definition of Kokoro in the literature where there's a conversation between an elderly wise man and a young person looking to the future and finding out there's more to life than what the, old, the wise old man saying. And it's, an, it's a disagreement between them. Um, and it's one of the, it's a very, you know, it's a literature masterpiece mm. um, um, in Japan. Then you have Kokoro in the sense of when something has Kokoro as a product, then it becomes in, it becomes at one with the human. So looking at the job of a spoon and how a spoon for certain cultures is such a great product, isn't it? It, it works mm. well with the hand and it works well for, for putting food into your mouth. And in other cultures, they might use chopsticks. Other cultures, they use their hands. But it's that, find that making, whenever you make something, that it, it becomes, do you call it? It's the oneness it, it creates with the human itself and the interaction with the human. And then there's a final one, which I find fascinating, is you can only get to Kokoro once you've mastered the basics, but you have to learn, master it, and then you have to continue doing it for many years until you get Kokoro. And the state of Kokoro is when you have mastered the basics really, really well. And I find that is what we don't do with our team leads. It's what we don't do with our leaders, is that we don't work with them continuously until they've mastered the basics and gone beyond that mastery. Um, that they have taken, they, they do the, you know, they, they do that Kokoro stuff so well that um, it doesn't matter what team you put them into, they will create the environment in which a team can excel. That's the wisdom stuff. Like it's the yeah, dance, that's what it, like just yeah. dancing with the different like aspects. Exactly. Moving effortlessly yeah. through. Yeah. And I will always challenge anyone on when they, they you know, when they talk about um, things around, you know, how do humans grow? And the only thing we've realized, and I still am adamant that the science, until the science changes, the only way humans can grow is through temporal comparison and not through social comparison. By creating a benchmark and comparing humans to humans, you create an environment in which humans cannot excel and grow to their best. Humans can only grow is when they compare themselves to themselves. So if a team is comparing itself to itself, it will grow, even if it's lying to itself. Because at one point, the lie will catch up in the team. Um, that you have to have the strength and the space and the leader should be able to read the room and hold that space because if they do that then the team will work it out um, and having that faith and trust in, in it um, um, and then you will see how things move and that's what we do at Kokoro and um, it works <laughs> once you get a good team structure and you give them the data they need in their retros and they start talking and um, the multiple opinions in the team get funneled through to a point where they can talk about what really matters because the data helps you funnel it because it's their data. Um, their data around psychological safety, around belonging, around flow experiences, then things do move. The team then starts realizing this is our focus point. This is what we want to do. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do with you. This is what we want to do for the organization. This is what we want to. Ha this is how we want to cross collaborate with other parts of the organization, and um, and then things do flow. Things do move. Mm. That's really interesting. I'm I'm uh, currently working my way through Gabor um, Mate's uh, latest book, that's called The Myth of Normal, and uh, what I heard you 
speak to there is this uh, the story of the socialized mind, so to say, that the the this the story that we are growing in comparison to others and that we are comparing and, and reinventing and identifying ourselves through others, it is actually just a cultural story. And there is that uh, that other, it doesn't have to be so, let's say. It, it is because it like, that's the water we're swimming in, but it doesn't have to be so. No, the, uh, uh, what people are confusing um, is this one thing. And I think Lisa Feltman Barrett has put it into, um, it, I think brought it, like has pointed it out really well as a neuro, you know, a neuroscientist. Um, you know, we have a nur- nature that needs nurturing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also, what, what she doesn't disregard is that our, the mind I have, I have because there are other humans around me. My mind develops because there are other minds around me. And, yeah. and that is something that we can't take away. You need social connection and interaction to ensure that um, your mind um, evolves and matures and grows. Um, but um, helping somebody grow in a skill, helping somebody grow their knowledge or their expertise or their mastery or their ability to let's take surgeons um, to help them grow in how they operate on, on humans to save lives. Um, you need to create an environment in which they can exchange with other peers, the spaces, but within that space, they need to be able to compare themselves to themselves and continuously reflect on how have I moved? How have I progressed? What is breaking? What is stopping me? What is, um, you know, in my way? Um, and then what is the thing I need to focus on going in the direction I want to, um, you know, where I feel I will be fulfilled or I will be content. Um, and those are the things that we continue to look at. So it makes complete sense that there is no normality anywhere. Yep. There yep. is no rounded individual who will be able to do everything. Um, and it's a misnomer to think that um, um, by helping, if an organization has a purpose, <laughs> that everybody will find their meaning within that purpose. Well, it doesn't work like that. Um, and that's why I struggle sometimes when organizations say we've got a great purpose and they have a toxic culture. Um, I know lots of organizations that have phenomenal purposes, um, but internally in parts of organization, it works really well in parts of organization. Um, it's toxic. Um, so how does that happen? If you've sorted out your meaning as an organization. So how do you scale meaning? If you do have a purpose as an organization, um, how do you do that? And how do you do that? Well, and, and those are the questions I've always had, and nobody was able to answer them because all I got ever invited to was another culture workshop. Oh, we're going to, a select group of leaders worked out our purpose for us. Really? <laughs> How did that one work? And look, if you want to change something, one thing I realized, if I want to change something in my family, then my job and my partner's job is to spend time with the family members and talk to them until there is some form of agreement saying, well, hey, do you know what? Let's try this out as a family. That means there's 100% agreement to try out something. So how often do leaders in organization spend the time to get 80% agreement on, hey, we're going to do a big change in the organization and we need all of you to agree to 
um, going this path with us before they begin. Um, would it be great that just before you start any transformation, that you ask everybody, look, this is the transformation we want to do. And do you want to do it? <laughs> and what if 60% say no? And you go, uh-oh. Then not to be frightened, but saying, okay, we as leaders have not done our job. I think we should go back and speak to people again. And maybe our transformation maybe is too big. Maybe it's not big enough. Um, let's come find out. Do the changes necessarily and then ask again. And not until you get 80% of the organization going, yeah, let's go for this. Start. Believe you me, it will be a lot easier. But it might take you two years to get there. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's also sort of the measurement point. Like when when is the organization uh, when is the organizational transformation done? Is it when you launch it, or is it when it's actually implemented? You know, it's exactly. like how do you, yeah. you know, and, and when is you are you as a leader rewarded for it being quote unquote done? Um, yeah, one, I, I can actually give you something. One thing we've learned with hundreds of teams, what we found is when team leads or when teams when organizations go to the teams and team leads or the team have the goal announced to them, um, the likelihood or the probability of them being successful in taking those goals, creating their own and bringing them to the ground and making them work is very, very low. Um, where we've seen it works really successfully with teams is where leaders have cascaded meaning, but not the goals. Say and I find like that. that fascinating. It's because meaning meant that they, they didn't only present the goals. They saw the goals are not important. It's like, hey, what does this mean for us? This is what it means for us. And they had this discussion, and the discussion was long. It, you know, they had to spend time doing it. And what got transported was the meaning behind the goals. And there we found teams were able to then say, okay, this is the part we can deliver on. We'll do that. In the next six months, we'll get there. Or the next 12 months, we'll do this. Or the next three months, we'll do this. Depending on the goal structure and the goal methodology they were using, whether it was OKR or whether it's just straightforward KPIs or balanced scorecard, whatever method, method they used, then um, it worked. And that was fascinating to see that cascading meaning was more important than cascading the goal. Right. Because then it becomes, you translate it in a way. So just to, like, you, they get to translate it to themselves in the language the teams get to take. And, and so therefore, is, I, I'm a little bit resistant to the word ownership, but still, there is, there's kind of that. What, autonomy. Because ultimately what you're saying is, I am autonomous and I will take what means something to me. And we as a team will sort that one out and go with it. And so there's a certain aspect of self-determination. So... What you're saying, meaningful work for me, ultimately, you know, I started off by the human experience, is self-determination. So how do I as a leader create an environment in which we can self-determine? But one thing you have to be aware of is that if we build microphones, um, we're not going to have the expertise to start building maybe cookers or fridges or something else. So you don't want to, no team is going to go, okay, um, I know we've got to build a microphone, but why don't we build a fridge? <laughs> I don't think no team's going to do that. And if they do, then maybe there has to be part of the business saying, hang on, maybe we do have some talent that we've never realized about microphones that right. will help us build maybe the most um, sustainable fridge in the world. And maybe we should open up a new part of the business that and, and, and send this team on their way and give them some initial capital to, um, to bring this product to market within the next whatever, you know, year, two years, whatever it takes to bring such a product to the market. So, you know, I mean, it's one of those things. And yeah. when you start looking at certain organizational structures, I do that. There are, there are out there. 
um, you'll find that they suddenly um, do, you know, I mean, I find Japanese organizations amazing because they do keyboards. Um, but once you finish playing your keyboard, you can jump onto um, a Yamaha scooter or motorbike. Um, you can go down to the Yamaha bank, pick up some money. Um, and how they use one brand across multiple products. Um, you'll find that with, you know, Sony, you'll find that with all the Japanese companies and you'll find that with the Chinese companies like Haya, where, you know, they've got small units of 150, which are individual companies, um, which are led on a network system of organizations. So there is something that is happening out there. And, and, and I think that's why meaningful work for the European the hardest thing will always be is to shake off their conditioning and think their colonial past. Mm. And it's a really hard one for, for a lot of people to say, well, that's a bit complicated. And I go, no, it's not. It's not complicated. <laughs> if you know your country's history, you know Europe's history and the damage we've created around the world and the people are still suffering today, then you'll understand as any successful um, business um, what your job is to do. And you will... And, and, and find those leaders that that, that know that and uh, are able to unlearn that, and they will start building phenomenally brilliant organisations where people um, are able to live their multiple identities if they have them, or maybe if they only have one, then it's one. But I think that's what it's about. Beautiful. And I wanted to bring us back to the the work you do with uh, Be Kokoro or Kokoro mm-hmm. and the. Because you said three things. So there was the team structure, the data, and the retro. Like those are three components that seem to be there. And just to make that explicit as well, uh, Kokoro is, I mean, I would disrespectfully maybe call it, but it, it is a, a way of a new, a reinvention of the Pulse. Um, pulse exactly. It's right. a team development tool. We've realized working with hundreds of teams that um, lots of organizations want to do these broad um, surveys. And that's fine, do them. Gives you an overall picture, gives you a snapshot of where the organization is. But one of the things we found was there are lots of team leads and leaders of teams that need data to support their teams in how the environment is for them to perform. And that's where it comes in. And we realized that one of the biggest issues was that things always come on top. The cultural work always comes on top. The OD work always comes on top. And you've got to do it like... Once you've done everything else, and we're thinking, well, why don't we integrate this into the work they do? Why don't we use the retros? Why don't we use their meetings? Why don't we use give them the data where they can use it and start building it from the team level upwards? Mm. And then you'll start realizing that it doesn't always have to be work on top. And I think that's one of the biggest things for leaders who are saying, look, I, I need to work on the culture. How do I do that? Well, Give them something where it starts at the team level. Yeah. And then once all teams have that data, then the team leads will come together and start realizing, oh, God, how do you then achieve more psychological safety? Or how do you get that sense of belonging? I don't. And then they start creating their own 360, a new space, where they learn in some sort of team leader huddle. Mm-hmm. And then from there, the team, the leaders, then can learn from the team leads on what does the organization need? then you suddenly start creating, it's an integral part of the organization. And that is what we're trying to achieve with Kokoro. And we started very small with one team. Um, and then it slowly grows through the organization with you know, with one client where you know, we're going to be scaling it to 2,600 people, which is going to be you know, um, hundreds of teams. 
and we're doing it at different speeds in different parts of the organization. And that is the beauty of how organizations are. They are, it's not one personality. They are varied personalities, all at different levels of, 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 of evolution. Some are a teenager <laughs> about to burst um, and go crazy. Um, some have become a mature person and want to valid, keep validating the same business model again and again until it, the market says no. Other parts of the business uh, have never really fat healed because there's been just too many things going wrong. But what they produce, people want, and it's about healing that part of the organization. So these are all the little, and, and I think if we start looking at it like that, it will make it a lot easier um, and take the stress out of the system and for yep. leadership when they have to continuously create the same level everywhere because you won't manage that ever. You can't. There is no, I think, and that comes back to the book you mentioned, isn't it? Yeah you know, normal, what's normal, what's the norm, um, trying to find, well, my, I think my last statement really is why I, Why do I hate the statement work-life balance so much? Because there's this funny concept that there's too much life. <laughs> work-life balance, you're somehow saying indirectly, um, Amit, don't have too much life, make sure there's enough work there as well. Um, this top-down solution that came from senior leadership called the work-life balance to resolve um, the, you know, um, how can people be resilient to shitty cultures is wrong. It's not right. Not until we move on from work-life balance or we start having more talk about resilience is created through a sense of belonging. Resilience is a we thing and not an I thing. I can't be more resilient. You cannot be more resilient. We can create an environment in which we are resilient. Therefore, I can profit from it as an individual. That's how resilience works. Um, and what leadership has done, and um, I'll put up at the first leaders put my hand and say, I am to blame because I thought it was like that, is that resilience is each and every individual's responsibility. No, it's not. It's leadership's responsibility. They have to create the resilient organization. Um, my responsibility individual is my health. I can take care of my health. That's okay. I'll take that. That's my, I own that. <laughs> it's my health. Um, your job as a leader is to create an environment in which resilience is strengthened and a standard part of the way we work. And that is really, really key. And that's what people don't get. And then if that happens, then you will start seeing people will find multiple meaning at work. And that's our job. If you want to do so, do you know what? I, I, I've, I've got, I know what meaningful work means for leadership. Mm -hmm. Their job is to create, is to, is to multiply human experience. Yeah. So meaningful sure. work is for me, the definition is leadership's responsibility and being held accountable for creating, multiplying the human experience. At work. Yeah. And I would even, I would venture to say, if we're picking words, but I would almost say to amplify rather than to modify. Yes. No, it's like to... Yeah, amplify. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, can you see that? But yeah, I think amplify almost like with music, isn't it? Because right. when music is amplified, it just sounds... That if the You can then change the bass, you can change right. the treble. You have this freedom on the equalizer to do stuff if you can and you're able to. So 
So that you can see that. So you can start realizing that then it becomes a lot more interesting. Um, and what it does as well is, and for, for each and every leader that we then bring in, who, who, you know, if a human says, hey, do you know what? I want to have a go at building a team and leading a department or, hey, building a new business for, for the business, um, then I think it would be wonderful if we then integrated it into the journey of their tenure at the company and not take them off to some leadership program for two days or a week somewhere where it hasn't, it won't, it won't move anything. It might get them some inspiration and don't get me wrong, spending some valuable time with other colleagues. You always come away thinking, oh, cool, I might try that. Um, but you know, the only place where you keep moving and changing is in the environment where you keep feeling the tension and the problems and the crisis and the challenges. So removing yourself from it doesn't help you grow. You've got to be in it so you grow. I've never grown, you know what I mean? I've never grown as a father because I've gone no. to a two-day program somewhere and I've come sure? back and I've been a bit, no, no. I've grown in the moment when my son said, dad, you're being a shit dad. No. Or when you're- I agree, here. 100%. It's exactly the, I mean, it's exactly the philosophy that we put into InnerWorks. Um, I mean, it's the same thing. Like we do it at the job with the people that we work with and we train together gonna, and we yeah. discover together. And like most of the stuff is not the tools. Yeah. Most of the stuff is just the interpersonal stuff. Like what happens when we see these tools together and how do we understand them? Did you understand it that way? Wow, that's amazing. You know, I, I saw this, you know, and, and then you can start leveraging the diversity that comes up. Um and what I want to do, I know we need to sort of start to round off as well, but one of the things that I'm hearing you speak of that I'm getting very excited about is that the work you do with the teams, as, as you're pointing out to where we ended now with the, it's done in the environment where they are um, in, in, the, in, the, in the right unit, so to say, in the unit that we are supposed to work with, that's where we build the skill. So it's almost like you're, you're cultivating these, the conditions for the organisms to kind of like the teams come together as, as almost as an yeah. organism and create like their identity and their little sort of habitat that they can then thrive in. Um, and what I'm also hearing you speak to is that you're shifting the narrative from the spoken word as a as the main sort of unit of value, as a, we, we say that we do these things, we communicate that we do these things, to looking at what is actually done. That's what I'm hearing with the data part of that, is that we can look at how did it feel in us as we were engaging with the work. And then we can keep following that feeling. And that feeling is, you, you spoke about Lisa Feldman Barrett. I mean, that's a lot of her work as well. It's like, how do emotions appear? Like how, do that, how does that actually, and, and the misunderstandings of how we think they appear and what they are and so forth. But exactly. let's not get into that. But, but still like that, that feeling, and that's the currency that carries the team forward into exactly. their that's day. It. That's and, it. Yeah. So what it does mean when you talk about, I mean, one of the things I've always found is exactly that, how we construct our emotions. And, um, and then one thing that we have got to add to the stimulus and response equation, which is missing one important part of what we are as humans, is that we sense things. We have what they call in German an Ahnung. And when, when you have an Ahnung, you are... Before you walk into a room, you sense something. You can feel that attention has left the room and you feel, God, we've worked it out, Amit. We've got rid of our conflict and I'm so happy the tension has lifted. And um, that is the fundamental step that we forget. And that is the data we need. That that sensing part that we do as humans 
um, through our emotions to navigate complexity is necessary before you can then say what stimulus will help us to create the reaction we need. And so one thing I want to correct science on is um, that we need to move away from the um, stimulus and response model because it's wrong. And I think Lisa Feldman Barron has pointed that out clearly multiple times. And sadly, we still have a very strong part of the world of science and some very strong academics who are influential through their peer group network. Once again, coming back to network, the gentleman's club that are not willing to let go of that because there is a whole theory of concepts and AI now as well that is based on that science. Like you can read a person's emotions through micro, micro expressions on their face. And it is completely and utterly wrong. Um, you cannot read any form of emotion. Um, there is no connection between your outside skin and the emotion that's going on inside your body. There never has been a connection. Um, if it is a connection, then it's coincidence that you feel happy inside and you're smiling. Mm. <laughs> it's a coincidence <laughs> with the fact mm. that you do that. And it's culturally um, learnt. That I feel happy inside. If I want to show the world, I'm happy. But you can also walk, walk around with a depressed face and feel very happy inside. Good. I'll let that be the final word. And if people want to find you or the, the work that you do, the, the Bikokoro and so forth, where, where do they look? Where would you well, do you can go to bikokoro.com. Um, and you can also find me as Imran Raymond on LinkedIn. Um, you can, I think those are the two main areas where people connect with me. And then I'll the also um, the I'll send notes, you yeah. my email, Imran at bikokoro.com and they can connect directly by email um, and, and ask me about the science around great teams and the work we do. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. And this was... Uh, Anytime, man. I'm a real pleasure. Wonderful conversation. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Meaningful Work podcast. This is a disclaimer. People appearing on the podcast, both guests and hosts, represent their own views. InnerWorks do not necessarily work with or condone or recommend any of the practices that the guests or hosts talk about in this podcast episode. For full transparency on how guests and hosts are related to InnerWorks, please check the show notes. What is the point of this paperwork? What is the point of these meetings? What is the point of managers coming and going? You must gain balance within yourself before you can bring balance to the world. Sometimes I faltered. I had bad days. We need people to be human at work. We need ourselves to be human at work.